Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's podcast for Christ Followers Bible Study, we're in the book of Acts, chapter 13. Our study leader, Mark, in his diligent studies, has uncovered some really exciting information. And so we're going to backtrack a little bit. We're going to be starting in verse 26 of chapter 13. I know we went a little further in our last but I think he's got some really interesting things for everyone here. And as we do, we'd like to open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, for allowing us to come together to study your word and for all the the work that Mark has done to prepare for these lessons. And we ask that uh, you fill our hearts to um, with, the, with the understanding to show your love to one and all. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening, Mark. Good evening. Uh, we've got a large number with us uh, online tonight. This study of Acts is just getting more exciting uh, all the time. I, I know that in my heritage or denominational background, we spent years and years and decades maybe just studying New Testament books by themselves out of their context as they fit into the Hebrew Scriptures the Bible, I mean, what, three-fourths of it or more is uh, is Hebrew scriptures written in Hebrew or Aramaic, and then just the last little part is what we call the New Testament uh, written in Greek or possibly Aramaic uh, originally. So our Zionist friends have really outdone us in their study of the Old Testament, if I can generalize here a little bit. And they... They appear to have this commanding knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures and beat us over the head with all these prophecies and so on and so forth. When we actually study the whole Bible together or see it in its purpose, which runs like a continuous thread from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of the Revelation, we see God's eternal purpose, which is to create a people for his own possession that he can dwell in them, indwell in them, and they can be his temple here on earth, and at the same time, they can be a suitable bride for his son. And this this theme and thread runs through the whole Bible and ties it all together so wonderfully and simplifies everything. We see that the Hebrew scriptures fit perfectly into this theme along with the Greek scriptures, and in fact, our Zionist friends 
have no real leg to stand on, but they are able to make a lot of good points against people who would call themselves New Testament Christians and who have spent their years studying the New Testament alone and out of context. So we've been trying to put the book of Acts in the context of this theme of the Bible and the eternal purpose of God. And we have been kind of looking at this as the restoration of Israel, which is the promise that repeats over and over and over again in the Hebrew Scriptures. And we've been seeing a constant pattern of fulfillment, not of failure, to complete all of these promises made to Israel. And Israel is, in fact, the chosen people of God. It is the chosen bride of Christ. But in their old form, they could not accomplish God's purpose at all. Only through a scatological transformation could Israel ever fulfill God's eternal purpose. And that's what we're seeing unfolding here in the book of Acts. And in the 13th chapter, we're really seeing this. We have a detailed transcript of Paul's lesson in a synagogue. Now, he does this over and over and over again, but Luke does not record all of these other ones. This transcript in 13 kind of serves as a pattern of what Paul is going to be doing uh, in all these other synagogues that he visits, and it also sets the context for many, many of his letters. One important letter is his letter to Romans. Many people would consider Romans the most important single book of the Bible. I've been following a series of audio recordings of lessons given by Don Preston in Ardmore, Oklahoma, about 10 years ago in 2002 on the book of Acts. He references numerous times in these lessons a book that came out in 1996 called The Mystery of Romans by Mark D. Nanos, who is not apparently a professional scholar, but he is a learned specialist in first century religious history, the history of Christianity and early uh, rabbinic Judaism. And his book is incredibly well done. I finally broke down and, and bought this book and I've been um, trying to study through it. it it's very detailed. The, the book actually just, I don't want you all rushing off and buying this book and then getting really mad at me. The book uh, won the National Jewish Book Award for Jewish-Christian Relations shortly after it was published. Um, and, and I'll explain to you why that happened here. But what Nanos does that is so important to our study here in Acts and to our study really of the whole New Testament, particularly of Paul's letters, is he he shows the proper historical context of what's going on in the Roman world outside of Judea there in the first century. Now, we all know that the God of Israel is the true God and the creator of the universe. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't be here on the phone together recording this this evening. It is not or shouldn't be a real surprise to know that throughout the Roman world, which was really the Greek world, it was really the world of Alexander the Great that the Romans uh, took over and co-opted. They adopted uh, all the political and religious culture of the Greek city-states, Athens and the other city-states of Greece. Their republic even was a 
experiment using Solon's laws, Solon's principles of, of running a country, and so on. So this is the Greek world that Alexander the Great envisioned, which is now being run by Rome. Greek is the universal language spoken in, in the civilized world. And 95% or so of the Judeans who were known as Judahites back in those days, who had been uh, carried off into Babylonian captivity in the 6th century B.C., they never returned to Palestine when the tiny remnant did that is uh, their histories recorded for us in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and several of the minor prophets uh, record part of that history as well. The vast majority of them stayed behind in Babylon. They were dispersed later throughout. the As Babylon became part of this Greek world, the Roman Empire, they were dispersed throughout all the major cities of the Roman world. And some of the Judeans who did go to Palestine, they also left and were dispersed abroad. So you have Judean communities in all the major cities of the world. And anywhere there were at least 10 Judean males, a synagogue could be formed. And on every Saturday, probably uh, or Friday evening when the Sabbath began at sunset, they, they really adopted Greek culture, even probably to the days as far as running like our days do, from uh, midnight to midnight as opposed to sunset to sunset. But they, they definitely adopted the Greek language. They, these became the Hellenistic Jews of the, or the Jew, Judeans, rather, of the diaspora. And these synagogues became the center of their communities in these uh, Greek cities. When you realize, as I came to realize when I visited Colonial Williamsburg a couple of years ago and visited their book bindery, books were incredibly expensive in the ancient world. Even after the invention of the printing press, books were incredibly expensive. A Bible in the 1750s would cost the full year's earnings of a, of a successful farmer. You could not just run down and buy books like we do today. So the only access that people in these Greek cities would have had to the Hebrew scriptures was at the local synagogue for the most part. And all of these synagogues accumulated, in addition to the Judean expatriates who were living there in that city, they accumulated Greeks from all over the Roman world who became attracted to the truth of the one God of Israel. I mean, when you compare the God of the Bible, of our Bible, to the gods of the Greeks, you see a rather a stark contrast. And so, and so here in Antioch of Pisidia, where we are, find ourselves in Acts 13, in addition to the Judean community there, we also have a large community of God-fearing Greek people. And this was the case in all of these uh, places. Cornelius the Centurion, who we met earlier in Acts, he was one of these God-fearing people who spoke Greek, who thought very highly of the God of Israel. So, so this was a fact of life. The, the, the culture, as Nanos describes in his book, of, of these synagogues was quite different from the atmosphere that we find in Palestine in Judea proper there in the first century where the Pharisees tried to 
exercise a complete snobbery and domination of the religious thought of the nation. This was not possible in the diaspora scattered around the world. And the synagogues were very pluralistic communities, and they were segregated into little sub-communities. You probably had some strict Pharisees in, in some of them, but uh, most of the Judean members would be Hellenistic uh, Judeans. These synagogues for, for nearly, or nearly exclusively in the first century met in homes. There were no dedicated buildings that have been located uh, dating earlier than the third century A.D. So these are meeting in homes, and these went beyond just scripture reading clubs because Judea had helped Julius Caesar during some of his military campaigns, and he had given them some unique privileges. He had given them the authority to practice their religion because they could prove that it predated the Greek-Roman religion practiced in Rome. It went, you know, of course, all the way back before Noah's flood, uh, their scriptures do, and so on. And they were given the privilege of exercising their religion, and this included an exemption from military service in the Roman army, because that required paying obeisance to the emperor and the Roman gods. So these Judeans had, uh, had very special privileges. They were recognized as a social organization, which in the Roman world gave them also several responsibilities. They had to vouch for the social conduct of all of their members. They had to make sure all of their members were buried when they died. They had to judge all minor details, uh, civil cases and minor criminal cases, and inflict punishment up to flogging. They could do the, the 40 save one or the 39 stripes, which Paul had uh, got to experience several times at the hands of uh, synagogue courts. So Nanos opens up a whole world of what it was like in these synagogues, and he he proves laboriously that the Christian community could not exist apart from the synagogues in these cities in the first century because that was their access to the scriptures. Okay, I've talked a long time here. I want to make sure I'm still connected to everyone here. Uh, Mark, this is Craig. Mark, uh, could you just yes. give me the uh, the name of the book and the author again? I just uh, was trying to write that Yeah, down. with... With the caveats that this guy, I, I haven't got to the end yet, but apparently what he does is he's taking the the true context of the first century and he's saying that that has never changed up till the present day, which would be the only possible reason that modern Jews could give him this award. But mm-hmm. I, I don't know right. the answer to that. So anyway, the, the name of the book is The Mystery of Romans, and the author is Mark D. Nanos, N-A-N-O-S. Okay. And it was published by Fortress Press in 1996, I believe. Fortress Press is Lutheran. Okay, cool. Yeah, Augsburg Fortress. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Okay. So I, I got more here, more raving to do. So what Nanos in his book also labors to prove, which fits in 
quite well with this study of Acts that we're, we're going to go through is that the Judeans in the first century continued to observe the law of Moses. They were almost passionate about it. Recall what happens when Paul goes back to Jerusalem. You know, he's kind of called on the carpet and, and all people are accusing you that you set aside the law and all this. And he, and this is kind of a preview. We haven't got there yet. But he's going to go up and help some men uh, fulfill their Nazarite vows at the temple and demonstrate that he is zealous for the law as are all of the brethren in Jerusalem. Now, many of us have been taught that the law ended or was abolished at the cross. And yet here we are, years after the cross, and the Judean Christians are continuing to practice the law. Nanos does a great job of explaining that in the book. And then there's this tension because you have these God-fears have been in the synagogues. They haven't been required to follow the law. But in order to be part of the synagogue community, they have been expected to comply with certain requirements, namely those that were given to Noah and his family when they got off the ark back in the book of Genesis to uh, avoid uh, fornication and uh, eating of things strangled and things like that. So there, there were a minimal amount of dietary restrictions that these God-fearing Gentiles were expected to comply with and so on. And they were, you know, not really supposed to go out of their way to make the Judean members of the synagogue feel bad for following the law of Moses. But you have this culture of these people existing side by side, Greeks and Judeans, and being part of one community before the gospel is preached, and that, and this will continue, Nanos contends, after the gospel is preached in each of these synagogue cities. And it really helps to explain a lot of things, and it helps to explain a lot of what Paul is talking about in his letters to these uh, various congregations. Uh, going back to the larger view, again, it, is that what we're seeing is, is not Paul saying, well, God's finished with Israel and now he's starting something all new called the church. You know, we don't see that. We, we instead see Paul over and over demonstrating how Jesus Christ initially and his disciples then collectively as his spiritual body are fulfilling all of the promises made to Old Covenant Israel in the Hebrew Scriptures in detail. And this explains a lot of things. And what this really is going to do for us is it's going to steal the thunder of our Zionist friends in claiming mastery of the Old Testament. We're going to see that uh, that they are left uh, desolate when you really uh, put all the pieces together. So that's my little, uh, you know, review here, and an addition of a little additional context. That's redundant. I apologize. We we have some additional context for this sermon in the synagogue in Acts 13. Paul has been invited to speak. Uh, they they've read the law and the prophets. 
two different sections of the Hebrew Scriptures. They had readings that was probably scheduled readings on a calendar throughout the world, and they had had these readings, and the rulers of the synagogue, and, and these rulers are all set up according to Roman law. They, there's five officials appointed in each synagogue in every city, one to run the courts, and, and et cetera, et cetera, one to manage the library. These rulers were kind enough to ask the visitors there to uh, speak a word of encouragement to the people. And this is why Paul is allowed to speak here. And all of us, you know, wish for such an opportunity to speak to a huge mega Zionist church. But Paul starts off on the points of agreement. He gives, he recaps the history of Israel. And he brings that up to the kingship of David, which is very important. And he points out how David was such a great improvement over Saul, the previous king, and declares uh, in verse 22 that David is a man after my heart who will do all my will. Then this leads him into the introduction to Jesus of Nazareth to the synagogue audience there. And he mentions the work of John the Immerser uh, there in verse 24. And how that John pointed to someone greater who would follow after him there in verse 25. And now let's pick up our reading here in verse 26. And let's read 26 down through verse 38, please. Brothers and sisters from the children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. All right, thanks. I accidentally broke right in the middle of a sentence here, but we'll we'll pick that up here when we can. Now, this discourse continues. He's addressing, in verse 26, the 
children of the stock of Abraham and those who are God-fearing Gentiles or nations, ethnos, the non-Judean people. They're kind of mutually exclusive. You're either a Judean or you're from another nation. And that word is translated Gentile in most of our English uh, Bibles. And, and again, we see these multiple communities assembled there together to hear the scriptures uh, in the synagogue. Paul calls it a word of salvation, this news of Jesus, the gospel. And in Nano's book, there is a quite a discourse on what salvation meant to the average synagogue attendee uh, in the first century. It is well attested that to an Israelite, salvation did not carry much of an individual connotation. The typical Israelite or Judean in the first century did not think of salvation in terms of his personal salvation. He thought of it in terms of the nation of Israel being saved by God, probably through the hand of a Messiah, a king who would lead them to military victory. The, the reason that they felt they needed salvation was the fact that Judea was subservient to pagans. And they all looked forward, and their feasts all looked forward to the coming messianic kingdom in which they would no longer be subservient to the pagans, but that with the reign of the Messiah, they would have dominion over all the nations of the world. This was what salvation meant to the typical Judean. And this is what would have been communicated through the readings of the Hebrew Scripture to the God-fearing uh, Gentiles. And there were many, many prophecies that in the last days of the old age, as the new age of the Messiah dawned, that all of scattered Israel would be regathered. All of the twelve tribes, just a tiny fragment of Judea had survived. The various uh, judgments carried on in the 6th century and the 7th century. Uh, but they knew that in the last days all of Israel would be regathered and that this would signal the ingathering of Israel and the inclusion of the nations into the restored kingdom of David. These were the thoughts that they studied every week as they read the Hebrew prophecies. And so, is talking about a word of salvation, this is what would have immediately come to mind, is this, the restoration of the kingdom of David, the restoration of Israel as it was under David. And this, uh, most Christians today in America have completely lost sight of this, except for our Zionist friends, who I can say are still obsessed with it. But they, they miss the point uh, entirely. So the Judean leaders in verse 27, and particularly the rulers of Judea, did not know this Jesus and they did not understand the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. They fulfilled them by condemning him. And even though they found no cause of death in him, yet they asked Pilate that he should be slain. And it says, and when they had fulfilled all things that were written of him. So again, we ask the complicated math question. 
when all things about Jesus had been fulfilled, how many things were left to be fulfilled in our modern age? That's a rhetorical question I'm asking our audience here. It seems like all of them. (laughs) Yeah, there's nothing left. If all were fulfilled at the time Paul spoke, then that that leaves nothing to be fulfilled here in 2013, either in America or in Palestine or anywhere else. And as we see over and over in the book of Acts. Now, there are numerous prophecies that are being fulfilled, but this sermon of Paul's is really going back to the song of Moses. Moses being the greatest prophet of Israel. Deuteronomy 31 and 32, which we need to really become really familiar with because it's really going to upset our Zionist friends if you start quoting this to them. In Deuteronomy 31, uh, God tells Moses to uh, teach this song to the children of Israel because they will turn to other gods, they will despise me, they will break my covenant, and when they do all of these things, this song will be a witness against them. Evil will befall Israel in the latter days, um, at the end of chapter 31, and then as he goes into the song proper in chapter 32, he says that, I will hide my face from them, I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse or twisted generation, children in whom is no uh, faithfulness or weak faith. And uh, he then says right after that, they have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. I will move them to jealousy with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation, which is exactly what we're going to see happening at the end of chapter 13. So this Deuteronomy scripture and prophecy it cannot be far from Paul's mind as he is speaking this because they are fulfilling the song of Moses or they fulfilled it in condemning him unjustly. Another passage in uh, Deuteronomy speaks of those who are cursed that hang on a tree and mentions that their body will not uh, remain on the tree more than one day. And uh, they fulfilled that one also. In verse 29, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb, continuing to fulfill all these prophecies in detail. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen for many days from those who came down with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who had come down, remember, to observe the Passover, his um, core group of disciples, about 120 uh, people. These are now his witnesses to the people. We bring you good news of the promise made to the fathers. But wait, that's in the Old Testament. These are the promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is the promise in Genesis 12 that our Zionist friends like to use as the quote for an irrevocable deed to all the land of Palestine and uh, no need to compensate anyone who has been squatting there for a mere 2,000 years, take it because that is a promise made to the fathers. But no, Paul is speaking of those promises made to the fathers as being fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth in the first century. God has fulfilled these promises to the Father in verse 33 to our children in that he raised up Jesus. 
as it is written in the second psalm. Now, this is really important. He only quotes one uh, verse of the second psalm. You are my son this day. I have begotten you. But these people, of course, heard the, had been hearing these read for years and years. So the entire context of the second psalm would come to mind. And this is, why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, or Messiah. Let's break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king on my holy mountain of Zion, or holy hill of Zion. So this ties in these land promises made to the fathers uh, to the person and the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. I will declare the decree continuing in Psalms 2 verse 7. The Lord has said to me, you are my son this day, have I begotten thee. And as ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So the, the second psalm in its context is about setting up the universal reign of the Messiah over all of the world. Kind of reminds us of the whole book of Daniel, where this same thing is promised over and over and over again. And Paul is quoting this, saying that this has been fulfilled in the occurrences in Jerusalem just a few years before. The sun has been raised up, and he is reigning on Mount Zion. And so this would imply, since there's obviously no new physical kingdom that has been established to compete with Rome, this obviously implies that these promises of the Messianic kingdom that all these people have been reading about every Saturday in the synagogue were spiritual in nature. And, of course, this unfortunately refutes all of the hopes and dreams of our Zionist friends today. Wow, I'm, I'm on a soapbox. I'm almost sorry here. So the second psalm, very powerful. Look at the entire context of the second psalm, which Paul says has been fulfilled. And as concerning, continuing here in verse 34, Acts 13, he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He has spoken this way. And now he is quoting from another psalm where he promises that his Holy One would not see corruption. And I got the wrong. There it is. Psalm 16. He's quoting uh, Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, the grave, neither will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Uh, recall that Peter quoted this same psalm on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem and used this promise to David as proof that Jesus was the Messiah, that he had been anointed as the new spiritual king of Israel. Paul is here doing the same thing. And uh, 
yeah, we can look. We we won't take the time to look at the whole context of the 16th Psalm, but uh, again, uh, it's being the these blessings that were promised to David are being extended now to Jesus, his descendant, as the restorer of David's line and as the restorer of David's kingdom. And Paul goes on, as Peter did, to to remind the listeners that David did physically die and his body rotted and saw corruption. And then in contrast in verse 37, Jesus, whom God raised, did not see any corruption. And then in verse 38, Be it known to you, therefore, brethren, that through this man is proclaimed unto you remission of sins. And this is a huge thing. This is what had to happen before Israel could be restored. Sin was the curse. Israel was being punished with foreign domination for their crimes and sins. And when we go back to the prophecy of weeks in Daniel 9, it says, Seventy weeks are decreed on your people and your holy city to finish transgression and to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness to anoint the most holy. So the anointing of the Messiah is tied in to covering the sins of Israel, for which they had been suffering for many, many long years and generations. I mean, their temple had been empty since they rebuilt it in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. The throne of God wasn't there. The throne room was empty. They never saw the Spirit of God descend upon the temple as they had when the tabernacle was dedicated at Mount Sinai, and later when Solomon's temple was dedicated in Jerusalem. Everyone, all of Israel assembled, saw the presence of Yahweh descend on those two instances, but nothing had happened since the temple was rebuilt. Israel had been waiting and suffering under foreign domination, waiting for their king to return to dwell in their midst. And Paul is now telling them that all this has happened. And these long-awaited promises have been fulfilled. There is not one word here about postponement. There is not one word here about failure. There is excitement. All of these things that these people had assembled every week to hear about and had been yearning for had happened. And that's why we're going to see these Greeks get super excited, just like the Ethiopian eunuch did after Philip read to him the prophecy in Isaiah saying that in the Messianic kingdom, the the eunuch and the foreign-born would bear fruit to God uh, on an equal basis with the native-born Israelite. And he went on his way back to Ethiopia rejoicing. We're going to see the same kind of response in these Greeks here in the synagogue uh, when we have a chance to continue. But I've probably used up our time uh, for tonight. Uh, we'd probably have time for a few comments or questions. Great. That was wonderful. Mark puts a whole new light on, on this chapter here. 
Any questions from our listeners? I'm glad to see you point out that the prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus' day and not now. Great. Craig, you had a comment? Yeah, Mark. Um, what, I'm, what I'm hearing you say is that this whole idea of in-gathering, uh, that's what the, the, the Jews were looking forward to in, in the time of Christ, and that is what they're still looking forward to, or are they, are they seeing that fulfilled in uh, the 48 Israel? Well, the first century Judean community was real divided. Most of the Hellenistic Judeans were eagerly excited about this, and they were recruiting these Greeks to come in to be ready because they knew from the prophecies of Daniel that, all the, that the time was right for this all to be fulfilled. And so they were helping to prepare these Gentiles for this long-awaited ingathering. Now, I think you also then extended the question to modern-day Jews. Is that correct? Yes. And, and again, you have a real mixed bag. Ultimately, it's, it's, a, it's a real sticking point because no Jew of any persuasion, even the ultra-Orthodox, can deny that eventually all of the nations must acknowledge the God of Israel as the true God of the universe. And so none of them can really deny, the, I mean, we, we have page after page after page in the prophets devoted to the in-gathering. And, and Isaiah, his whole prophecy is talking about that in the last days the uh, Gentiles will all be gathered into Zion and they will all come to Jerusalem to worship. So I think the response is mixed in the modern community, but ultimately they can't really deny it. They just have differing views about how it will be fulfilled and, and the relative status of, of the true Jews or the ultra-Orthodox, you know, and these, you know, uh, uh, fake Jews like the conservative and the reformed Jews and, and then the Gentiles hanging on the outside. I mean, I think there's the same mixed view of, of what it will be like in the Messianic kingdom today as there was really in the first century. Uh, does, does that answer your question at all? Yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, the, the Zionist view, the 1948, uh, as the beginning of the fulfillment of all of this. And, you know, I, I mean, there's so many inconsistencies that it would really disturb them to point them out. But, <laughs> but they try to show how this is being fulfilled uh, today. But, you know, they have uh, a hard time doing it. Uh, you know, really, because the Orthodox Jews really don't want anything to do with any of us, uh, as far as I can tell. All right, so we got Chuck who would like to make a comment. Mark, at the very beginning, you were talking about Paul discussing a practicing of the law, and you stated that, he, that Jesus did not come to, to eliminate the law, but he came to fulfill it, which, of course, I think we all realize and accept that. The question is, what is the law? Because we seem to have a difference in what Jesus regarded the law to be and what the Pharisees regarded it to be. Uh, you had the Babylonian Talmud by this time, and at least it was not maybe written, but it was certainly practiced with uh, thousands and thousands of rules, 600 laws or something like that. And then you had the Ten Commandments, which uh, I always thought was what Jesus was referring to when he talked about following the law. Which do you mean? Well, that's a good question. We've 
in some of our earlier talks on Acts, we have talked about how the, that the, the religion of Israel had been corrupted by the first century. I didn't actually quote that tonight, but uh, I can see why that would come to mind. The Song of Moses that we did refer to specifically talks about their religion being corrupted with idolatry uh, by their last days. So yes, the Gospel of John is all about this, uh, this tension between what Jesus regarded as the, as the law and what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were actually practicing. But that's really a separate question here. There were something like 661 commands that had been identified from the Hebrew Scriptures as being the law. And so that's what I'm referring to in the synagogue community. We're going to see throughout the book of Acts that the Judeans, those who had been circumcised, whether they were native-born Judeans or whether they were Greeks who had been circumcised and then had been made part of Israel by that, that was the delineating distinction was circumcision. All of those who were circumcised followed all 661 commands of the law. Modern-day Messianic Jews would claim, you know, to still be able to do both, I, I would assume. I don't know. They can't follow all 661 because a whole bunch of them would pertain to temple sacrifices. But the end of the temple is really what marked the big change here, and, and, and hopefully that addresses your question. The Judean Christians scrupulously followed all the commands of the law as best they could. And, you know, everyone's version of it was a little different. Everyone's version of it was a little corrupt, uh, but some more so than others. They were trying to follow all the commands of the law to the best of their ability. And, and we'll see that there's a specific reason we're doing this, because they had this burning hope that they could save a remnant from physical Israel before the nation of Judea is utterly wiped off the face of the earth, which is what happened. Not every member of the nation, I mean, some survived. Obviously, the, the conflagration uh, from AD 66 to AD 70, but the nation as a nation ceased to exist forevermore, as evidenced by the destruction of the temple and of the daily sacrifices and the Levitical priesthood and so on and so forth. And we see are the Zionists and the ultra-Orthodox, well, I don't think the ultra-Orthodox are even trying to rebuild it, but there are some Orthodox factions who are working with the Zionists to try to rebuild the temple and to restore all these things. And, of course, they're having trouble after trouble after trouble because God eliminated that forevermore. And so that's what I'm going to be showing. It's not making any distinctions on who was following the law more perfectly than others, but that that the Christians who were of Judean origin were going to be trying to follow all of the law scrupulously as long as the temple stood, as long as the priests were offering the daily sacrifices. Wow, Mark, that was really great. Thank you so much, and thank you, everybody else, for all your input and interesting questions. We'll look forward to continuing on in our study next week. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast, and please visit our website, whtt.org. 
you will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.